Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of PhD students studying neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Connor. And I'm Josh. And this episode has an interesting topic, which is basically like the role of neuroscience in psychology or the division between neuroscience and psychology or some combination of those words. And uh, what prompted this was an article that was written by... Uh, The first author is Seth Schwartz and some people at the University of Miami, and it's called The Role of Neuroscience Within Psychology, A Call for Inclusiveness Over Exclusiveness. So, I mean, the idea is is that they feel that recent psychology uh, has been kind of infiltrated by people doing what's actually neuroscience. And so they want to lay out a bit of the differences between neuroscience and psychology and the role that there still is for non-neuroscience psychology in the world. Would yeah. they say that they were? They think that it's been infiltrated? That I don't seems think they would stronger say infiltrated. <laughs> but the, I, well, I, I that's think your the impression idea, of yes, it, right? That's my word. That I don't was think passed through a grace filter. Yes. But so, I mean, there, were, there are lots of ideas in this paper. Um, How many ideas? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like at least seven or so. Yeah, no, there were there were there are many distinct points that they're making, and so I, I don't know. I mean, to, to try to summarize this, there's there's many points, but we can try to maybe go through a few of the ideas that they. It's you know probably worth starting by going through a few of the ideas that they try to make, and then we can talk about how we how we feel about various of these points. So one of the one of the first points I think they make is sort of the distinction between reductionism versus emergent properties, and that they're interested as psychologists in studying what they consider to be sort of emergent properties of the brain, whereas they kind of view neuroscience as taking a bit of a reductionist perspective. Um, and then they later in the, I mean, so some of these things are not totally sequential, but they, they later in the paper cover a distinction between different kinds of reductionism. Um, so they talk about like eliminative reductionism or limited materialism and constitutive constitutive reductionism um i feel like it's kind of i don't know there's an intuition that i have if i think of what's the difference between psychology and neuroscience and what people in each field might think about what they do and i think this paper mostly lines up with it i mean they talk about um the history of there being neuroscience in the field and then, like, kind of the waves that happen, like, psychoanalysis was popular, and then it faded into uh, behavioralism, where people weren't thinking about what's happening inside the mind, but they were just using, like, strict methods to measure behavior. Um, and then there's this, like, cognitive revolution in the 70s. And so I think that they kind of attribute that it's to It's interesting that interesting. people don't too frequently talk about what kinds of phases there have been since the cognitive revolution. In like we're the, still in it. <laughs> well, well, fMRI a, I think was we're the not. next. Yeah, so yeah. The, next, the next big thing probably was fMRI. Um, but also it's not clear, I mean, at least from the experiences that I had. So, I mean, I think it might be worth talking about our backgrounds with respect to psychology. I mean, so when I was an undergrad... Uh, my uh, major was biological basis of behavior, which was sort of an interdisciplinary but biocentric perspective on neuroscience and psychological problems. And it it took class classwork from psychology and from kind of neuroscience. And at, at Penn, the department was uh, the the, psych, the psychology department had, I would say, a lot of kind of behaviorist leanings, despite being. I mean, uh, so to me, it always felt like. I mean, again, this is. People have different experiences depending on where they where they learned psychology, but the, psychi- the psychology department that I was familiar with kind of felt very behaviorist, um, despite it being kind of post cognitive revolution. Um, and it also, at least the, the departmental segregation was such that there was a lot of psychology and the sort of cognitive neuroscience people who did fMRI work, who are in some cases nominally part of psychology, were a bit separate from much of the psychology department. So what would you uh, consider behavioralist that was being studied there? I think there's a lot of work. I mean, again, this is 
different in, in different places, and some people would call this like sociobiology or something, but there's a lot of places where psychology includes the study of animal behavior kind of under the heading of ethology. Okay. Yeah. So like, even if it's rodent studies that are experimental, but behavioral rodent studies. Yeah, I guess there is, at least for me, when I think of psychology, I assume human psychology. But yeah, there's yeah. a whole world of ethology that is, in some sense, you know, it's psychology. It's trying to understand the minds the of behavior. animals. Yeah. Yeah. Or there was that paper behavior. by one of the... There was that paper by one of the authors that we just looked at. Or we didn't look at it, but it was about like trying to. They have apparently personality tests for chimpanzees, and there was a whole paper about how to whether or not those could be ported to humans and how you could, you know, learn things from. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess the main idea, if you want to draw a divide, is that if you study neuroscience, you're actually looking at neurons and their activities, and if you're studying psychology, you're not uh, going into the biological mechanisms but you're more describing patterns that you can read out through some form of behavior yeah i agree i mean I well think that's a different that's that's not necessarily the case right because they're making the distinction between emerging properties versus yeah so but whatever so so like behavior behaviors maybe you could view as like necessarily emergent properties in their way of looking at it, but there could be non-behavioral emergent properties. Yeah, but how do you like, measure those? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's like fMRI. Well, no, but there's, there's other things. Like, So I think this is not actually, I think, totally clear or laid out well in this particular paper, but broadly speaking, I think there's an interesting distinction to be made between neuroscience and psychology as different approaches to the study of behavior. So like, right, you can, you can study behavior from a sort of purely descriptive standpoint, and I would consider like psychophysics, which is generally kind of rigorous quantitative characterization of, you know, people's perceptual abilities. Or yeah, usually motor. like, you know, you show someone two images really quickly and see if they can say if they were the same or not or yeah. something so, like that. So yeah. basically psychophysics or psychometrics, this kind of stuff, is, is a sort of quantitative way of capturing behavior. And a lot of psychology, to me, uh, is a certain kind of descriptive characterization of behavior, and neuroscience, from a certain sta- from a certain perspective, is the trying to figure out what neural mechanisms produce that behavior. Now, there's another way that some people look at psychology, and they talk about this in this paper as well, though it's not totally dissociated from kind of behavioral stuff, which is kind of more uh, the study of preferences or attitudes or social forces that play between people. Um, so, like. You know, one of the examples that comes up a bunch would be some... I mean, so they talk about a lot of different things, and they, they talk about kind of psychi- psychiatry-related things or counseling-related things and pure psychological research. But so things that come up are like, you know, marital counseling. We'll probably end up talking about this because they talk about this a bunch in this paper as an example. So, you know, marital counseling is something that's plaus- like implausible from the perspective of approaching it from neuroscience. I, I don't think that it... You know. Yeah, I mean, I d- so yeah, I guess maybe we should also go into their kind of official philosophical stance or the ideas that they lay out because it does help to think about this. I feel like obviously right now in neuroscience it would be absurd to say I understand the neurological mechanisms behind married couples fighting. Um, but in some sense you should someday be able to do that once you understand neuroscience well enough and so that that idea the the notion of like what can you practically do versus what theoretically could be done by by looking just at neurons i think is a point where i disagree with the authors of this paper but i wasn't exactly sure yeah i wasn't clear on yeah. what exactly their position was. well so i end, think right? this gets back to this distinction that we we set up a little bit between limited materialism yeah. and constitutive constitutive realism well it's, they say you know they're talking about what is it two kinds of reductionism yeah eliminative and constitutive reductionism just yeah. as the words they yeah. use the point is the eliminative case yeah right is that it's all one thing that we will be able to totally totally once you understand all the neural stuff you won't need the psychological language right. at all okay. but i think yeah the way yeah and so right the kind of at root though is and this is the way it's kind of set up is that like there'll actually be nothing left which yeah, and I, yeah, because I feel like that's a bit of a straw man, right? Because it's not like it would. It's not like knowing the neuroscience is going to make the other stuff disappear. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like saying that is it just, it's just this is just the same as saying we don't need the concepts of pressure once we know that it arises from literal movement of particles. But obviously, we need the concept of pressure because it's there's just, just the concept. same as that, right? It's yeah, it's just, about yeah. what's useful and what you want to get done and that kind of thing. And so I couldn't mm. so. 
if you just kind of say that the eliminative version is really meaning that it just goes away, even though I don't really know what it means for it to go away, yeah. um, like, then so I can like, see the difference between the two types, but otherwise I couldn't necessarily figure out what the difference was. But I guess they're saying that the version that they are more in favor of, the constitutive... As they've set it up, is the only sensible one. I mean... <laughs> yeah, but also I don't... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't tell the difference between them necessarily, so I can't say which one is more sensible. Yeah, so... Um, but they give, like, these examples of, um, you know, like, something about a school of fish or... Yeah, so, so the examples are flocking behavior as a common emergent behavior, but, I mean, Connor's example of, like, statistical mechanics versus sort of particle-level descriptions are, are kind of conceptually analogous to flocking behavior right yeah but that they were trying to make it seem i thought that uh like if you knew the positions and behavior of all the fish in a school of fish you wouldn't know about the school of fish they weren't very rigorous about that but yeah, you, so i think you can defend that from a sort of reasonable point well, so, of view yeah, let's, i let's feel like set you up this could, distinction though because yeah. so like in in science right i mean this idea of emergent properties is something that kind of philosophers of science like to talk about a lot and I think scientists don't talk about very much um, and I think kind of implicit in a lot of the way scientists operationalize concepts is that there are ties across levels whatever levels of analysis is a term that gets thrown around when people talk about emergence right where there are sort of a description at one level and then there are kind of properties that emerge from the interactions at that lower level and this could happen many times. So there can be many different levels of analysis sure, with yeah. distinct properties that kind of emerge at the, at the new level of analysis, their new concepts. And so I think the statistical mechanics example is like a clear example that scientists can get on board with and say is fairly un unambiguous. Yeah. So something like heat or pressure or something like this is something that's a property of a set of particles that's not like a property of the particles in a sense. It's like a collective property of particles but only when viewed as a group, as a new object at a group level. And I think from my, from my standpoint, at, like if, if I can interject my own kind of philosophizing into this, I would say it has something to do with the way we kind of perceptually conceive of objects, mm -hmm. right? We just Definitely. kind of, yeah, so, you know, we just, there, there's the notion of a particle as an object, and then there's the no notion of a gas as an object. And it's convenient for us to describe objects in terms of having properties. Yeah, I feel like it's easy to justify it in terms of just like language almost. Like, sure. do I really want to have to describe every detail of something? Or do I want to say there's a school of fish over there and there's gas in this chamber? And, but it's more know. than I think, just language. Yeah, it's because, more than language. Because yeah. it's, it's the way you conceptualize the object. It's also, it's also like you could take a pragmatic view of it and just say, you know, given a goal, like say treating human disease, say, or... Um, understanding whatever that would you know we can come up with various ways of making the notion of understanding kind of rigorous ish like human behavior say like predict predictability say like that kind of thing what is the most somehow efficient level of description for that so it could turn out that some level of description that we would roughly recognize as a psychological one is kind of sufficient for a lot of the actual purposes we have yeah. right and we wouldn't need to go down to the neural level we might nonetheless have and like that is the case in a lot of say statistical mechanics right in yeah. terms of how it's used we're interested where in we, we can go down right. to the lower level if we need to and so in, in, well in, you could hypothetically it's not clear. theoretically you could yeah so that's a well, well let's so, just avoid that let's go well, come okay. back to it for one second in okay. one second right so you could theoretically and in, in other situations depending you where you would have another purpose you might even need to and so similarly in like neuroscience suppose there was a psychological level of description that sufficed for a lot of things there are it could conceivably be the case that there'd be kind of other purposes, say some specific diseases or something, where you would really need, in order to make progress at all, to go to a neural level. Mm -hmm. And then it could also be that you could go to a neural level, but Just maybe wouldn't need to for certain purposes. Th these kinds of things. I mean, yeah, so this yeah, would obviously. be nice. And I think from our perspective, and I think this is an inclusive view along the lines of what they would approve of, but I don't think this, this is really the way they articulated it. There's a sense that both of these levels of analysis... I mean, there's more than two, but, you know, neuroscience, various neuroscience-related levels and various psychological-related levels should be well fleshed out, and you should go to the appropriate one when suited. I, I think one thing that they don't necessarily get at, and I think a lot of neuroscientists or a lot of people who focus on the sort of lower levels when considering, like, multiple levels of analysis don't acknowledge, it, it might be the case that you actually lack, potentially in some fundamental ways, 
the ability to resolve the lower level right. for certain problems. Like you couldn't be able, to, you might not be able to measure all of the particles positions yeah. accurately enough. Just might there might be no feasible technology. Yeah. For like in the case of a gas, like so we know its pressure comes from the number of particles and their volume. We're never going to be able to like with an the, actual bunch of gas measure all of the particle position yeah. and velocities and then calculate the pressure. Yes, and so similarly for neuroscience. It might never be the case that in an individual, when trying to study like that individual's psychological functioning, it will ever be feasible or fruitful to record every neuron and then predict and understand what they're thinking and doing. We might be able to do get like kind of cruder, lower resolution glimpses into that, and it might inform us about an individual. And we might be able to do analyses across individuals, but it's, it's not clear that, you know, the goal is or, or should be to explain everything about an individual in terms of recording from them. I mean, maybe we want to do that for certain circumstances, for brain-computer interfaces. Maybe we want to be able to record from enough uh, neurons that we can get some signal with respect to a certain task. Yeah, but it seems like there are these medium levels, even if you can't get every bit of activity from every cell, uh, the medium level is groups of cells or brain areas or something, and not so much purely behavior or self-reported state, which is what pure psychology would you know, be interested in. Yeah. Maybe we should just like we could in our discussion, maybe I propose separate just kind of conceptually the comparison between neuroscientific and psychological approaches, which again, maybe is a little bit of a false categorization, like binarization of of maybe more of a continuum. But the distinction, distinctions between those things that are kind of theoretical um, or like objections to the certain uses of neuroscience in psychology or vice versa for kind of theoretical reasons, which is kind of what we've been talking about mostly so far, versus some kind of very real world right now practical issues, which they bring up later, like to do with funding um, and hiring practices and stuff. Because I think a lot of those end up being very much about kind of specific to the present day, maybe about like kind of political things, about how much money there is in general for things and things like self-marketing in science you know needing to pitch things in certain ways that are kind of fashionable yeah i mean i think it's all related though the so yeah you think it is i think it i think it's related but maybe yeah i think it is probably worthwhile to first talk about like the sort of philosophical issues that separate psychology and psychiatry from like neuroscience and neurology and and then maybe we can talk about some of the practical considerations about that too, and then maybe move to like funding related issues and hiring and training kind of related issues. Yeah, I mean they're definitely related, but it's just that to me it seems like so we'll get to those maybe in a, in a bit. But it, to me it seems like a lot of those real world type of things they're related in that like the, theoretically, if you kind of knew the answers to these theoretical questions clearly, you could make informed decisions about funding. But it just doesn't seem to me like we know enough to. It's not. It, sh- it couldn't be the case that well, maybe maybe it could. We could maybe you guys can argue that it could be. But like, it doesn't seem to me like right now it could be the case that you could like really figure out exactly how we should parcelate funding by kind of thinking about what the right levels. Of- well, I mean, if you have goals, then you can think about. It. So I, I I agree with the idea that ignoring neural activity is probably more efficient for certain levels of like treatment of certain issues, like the marriage counseling thing. It is far more reasonable to study, you know, if I have the couples do this kind of therapy, how many of them get better? And that's a psychological study that then can be used to inform people's treatments. And, and it's, it's like totally... a clinical study. It's not even pure psychology or anything. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, but, yeah. Or, but like it'll, the clinical study would probably be informed about or informed by concepts that come from psychology. Yeah, pure psychology in terms of people's, you know, self-esteem and how sure. they view themselves and their partner or something like that. So to me, it seems very clear that if you want to have some kind of practical outcomes uh, and kind of an understanding a bit of mechanism on some level such that you can design practical approaches, then it's fine to just be kind of pure, purely in the psychological domain yeah. and not question I mean, essentially, which brain this is, areas involved. This is the main point, and I think we're probably all sympathetic to this, that there are parts of psychology that are not directly tied to neuroscience yet and may never be. And those could still be interesting subjects and are, in many cases, subjects sure. that we're kind of curious about. Yeah, I think so in like, many places they're very clearly interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think like I, I'd to, also you know. totally empathize with this idea that like there is over-neuroscientification of various yeah, things. So yeah, from, for sure. So, I, I mean, we've talked about this like just kind of personally, is, you know, that 
it, there are many times when people kind of oversell the explanatory power that they get from neuroscience. They use the term neuroredundancy in this paper. And, and neuroseduction. Neuroseduction. But so like, <laughs> I mean, the, the basic idea being like, we've talked about this. I think we can say this because I think this was actually became regulated, right? So like the, the, these games, these brain-related games. Um, I don't think they regulated it, but Luminosity had to pay. Luminosity is yeah. the, the brain training game thing where you like play games on your phone and they claim that it'll make you not get Alzheimer's or something. I don't know if that's a claim that they made, but they do claim things in... That we think uh, are kind of crazy. I mean, yeah, like, but that, so that's interesting because I don't... not well-founded in real neuroscience. Yeah, well, so there's there's a few issues. There's the question of, you know... Are studies that suggest maybe these kinds of games are, could be helpful, are they actually done well enough and rigorous enough and, you know, reproducible enough that you should actually be able to sell a product on it? Um, and then there's the question of if people who are selling those products are claiming that it's neuroscience when it's really just psychology. Um, so that's more related to this paper. And I know there was um, there was some company that was... I think they even had neuro in their name or something. Like they were definitely marketing themselves as being about neuroscience and the product that they were selling is that you did a personality test and then they were going to tell your manager how to best manage you based on the personality sure. test. And it was, there was no neuroscience at all. Like it had nothing to do with neuroscience. But there was this desire to say that, you know, you're... Brain something. So, yeah, so but it's is not, a way of, needed, it's not like, needed at all. Yeah, using There the, is no neuro. There's no neuro there, but it's neuro is a way of kind of breathing new life into subjects in psychology that maybe don't seem as sexy compared to the sort of sexiness of contemporary neuroscience. Yeah. And I don't, I, yeah, I want, even though I want to do neuroscience, I want people to feel like it's okay to do psychology. <laughs> I don't want to, it's weird when you see people who do psychology buy into the seduction of neuro more than people who do neuro do. I mean, they want to throw neuro into stuff that's purely psychology because... Yeah, I mean, it's it almost interesting it that psychologists are the one writing this paper. It's as, it's as if there is an inferiority complex that neuroscientists don't really buy into. Except for, I, I mean, again, I think it is very widely the case that neuroscientists overstate the insights gleaned sometimes yeah, definitely. from the study of neuroscience. I mean, so it's, from yeah. the outside, people might see that and think, neuroscientists don't realize that they're overstating this. No, but, but I think I mean, it's true... Realize that things are being overstated by some neuroscientists. Yeah, I mean a related thing, right? If like I can totally understand this, right? If psychologists are supposed are expected to kind of like do vaguely brainy seeming brain brain related things and use neuroy terms and stuff in order to like get grants, you know, like they talk about these various you know national institutes of health and national institute of mental health and so on, like these goals. I don't know what they're called. These kind of goals that they that they have. They state like our goal for the next whatever years is to whatever and they have these things like we have to figure out the like connectomic basis of whatever disease and this mm -hmm. kind of stuff and then there's like psychologists might have some pressure then to like kind of do that or include neuro that up their grant neuro up their grant applications yeah. like which is very much the same as like people studying you know basic like cortical development have to at the end of every paper Explain say something like oh yeah this is how this is how this is going to solve autism it's, that's just ridiculous. It's just usually autism. Yeah, <laughs> well, for development, and it's yeah. different things for other. You know. Different things, yeah. yeah. And then, and which is just like it's a part of this whole bigger problem of just absolute bullshit salesmanship in science. Yeah, I mean, fighting I, for grants, and it's. Just, I mean, I was yeah. I was reading this, and I was thinking about like some of some of the complaints are that the kind of people that they feel like are getting hired in their departments are the ones who are better suited to get grants based on the current values. And I look at that more as a social problem and less as maybe a departmental or psychology field problem. Like, as a society, we value the kinds of science that directly feed into uh, improving health outcomes, or there are some kinds of psychology maybe that are useful for, like, marketing and advertising or things sure. like this. Yeah, and also, like, things that are maybe not, maybe it, it goes under the guise of, oh, we want to, you know, focus on things that are going to ha have good health you know, health outcomes, like to help treat diseases or something. But oftentimes what they think is going to help with they being the people who are somehow coming up with these overarching goals for funding and stuff, what they seem to think will help treat diseases can seem so, not necessarily misguided, but kind of arbitrary. It's not clear, you know, if they'll say something strong, like the blah, 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 basis of some disease. And it's kind of yeah, that seems worthwhile, but it's not clear that that should be, like, the thing. Yeah, I mean, any disease, so. or even not a disease, any behavior is going to have many different factors that go into it that make it happen and different levels on which you could explain it. So it's hard, I think, 
to have a top-down sense of like we should focus on the psychological understanding and we should focus on the neuroscience understanding yeah. um because you don't know where if, if you do have a clear goal like in order to cure this disease you don't even know all the time which level will lead to some sort of yeah. helpful cure these are hard problems like yeah. figuring out what the distribution of resources should be across levels is a hard problem yeah. for actually for, for actually hard problems like solving a disease yeah. that we don't i have like intuitive senses of this like i feel like you know, something like um, bipolar disorder, maybe we should focus more on like a chemical thing because it seems like there's like these huge swings that maybe aren't. Well, yeah, the, the but then other things, you know, like uh, aggression might that might be more triggered by people's environments or how they were raised or something. I, I mean, these are just my intuitions that I kind of well, made so, up. Yeah, so, and but, they talk about this in like, they say Alzheimer's in, in their, is their example of one that's like pretty clearly something that we want to treat with biological mm-hmm. solutions. Whereas something like marital counseling is something... Well, yeah, the marital counseling, sometimes it seems easier, but then there's these middle grounds where it's hard to know... Which is which, yeah. which way you should treat it. And so I guess in those cases, you should pursue like for example, both PTSD avenues until it gets one. clear. Or depression. Yeah. I think yeah. both of those are kind of interesting. And I mean, autism is kind of interesting. I mean, it's very genetic, but like, I don't know. Sure, yeah, but like, the, if you have an autistic person, what's likely to be the treatment? Yeah, yeah it might just be behavioral stuff certain types of schooling or whatever also because it seems to be so kind of distributed in like the brain well we i mean sure seem to be many things in the brain that can are postulated to contribute to autism so which one to focus on stuff so they talk about stuff that uh it's kind of like combining the it's supposed to be examples of both sides being necessary and um some of the examples they were giving that self-evaluations can predict biological processes, like people who self-evaluate as having low self-esteem, like they'll have different cortisol levels and people who don't and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and I don't know how much I buy into the value of this kind of evidence that you, you need both sides, because I feel like when a person reports that they have low self-esteem, they probably have a neurological marker of that, not like a chemical, but like certain neural activity is probably correlated with the reporting of low self-esteem. So again, from like the, the very practical standpoint of, you know, how can we treat people now? I could see how knowing these connections could maybe be helpful. It might be but like vastly of, more helpful though, right? Even like to yeah, because if it's easy, if, if, if self-reporting is sufficient to explain. You know, for the practical part. Yeah. But then when I think of, like from an understanding of the yeah, brain. But again, so yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this as well, which is we want to know what the brain is doing when there is some pathology possibly triggered by social factors that then affects the brain. And they talk about this distinction as well, which is one that I feel like is often overlooked, but whether the brain kind of mediates something or whether it's the cause of it. So like kind of roughly, uh, I think a clear way of thinking about this is like if there's some thing about the brain that sort of stems not from environmental factors, but like for, for genetic reasons, the, br- the brain looks a certain way or it is a certain way, and that causes a pathology that affects behavior and, you know, the, this, the happiness of a, of a person. That's a problem. That's one kind of problem that's sort of caused by the biology. And another one that is sort of, we think kind of is extremely common, is where social forces affect the brain. And then it, it's this kind of thing that, some people get caught in these loops of which, like, I mean, logical loops of when analyzing, right? So, like, it's clear that it was a social factor that shaped the brain. And so it's not like the brain is causing the problem. There's some social factor that's causing the problem. Like, if PTSD is visible in the brain but was initially triggered by an event in a person's life. So there's an experience that causes PTSD. It's then reflected in the brain. So you would say the brain is mediating the PTSD. So often again, the, that's kind of trivial. It's just saying like yeah. there was a social factor but, that affected a person. But the non-trivial thing, right, is oftentimes you're looking for kind of implicit in the notion of, you know, I, of, of the search for the cause is that you're looking for the place to treat something, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so if, do you treat it with a social factor or with a... With a, with a so like PTSD is obviously caused originally well we, we assume by an experience you can't undo the, the original name of it. Ex- <laughs> yeah post traumatic right so okay but you, so you can't undo the original experience so you can't treat the cause and that thing so then you enter into the loop and then one question you could ask is like where's the cleanest most efficient way to yeah. intervene in this clearly cyclical thing right where there's things happen to the things happen to the person which we think of as if their behavioral changes being mediated by being changes in the brain which kind of online 
And therefore, it's hard to talk about be you know, one call going before the other. Like online calls changes in behavior, which cause changes in how you interact with the environment, which will cause further changes to your brain sure. and so forth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, no, that's, that's clear. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, so I think the, yeah. So the, the, the question becomes where to intervene. And a point that they bring up is that many treatments might end up being social treatments and we should exclude that. And I, again, I think when you take one step back and like stop thinking about the treatments for a moment, it seems natural, regardless of what the treatment's ultimately going to be, to want to understand it on both levels. Sure. Right? I so mean, like, and that's also just from a basic science perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's basic science. Is yeah, you just basic. want to understand things to understand exactly. things. Exactly. So, like, but even in the context of some, let's say, like, somewhat interesting disease, and I don't mean that in a way to objectify the disorder mm -hmm. or anything, right? But, like, PTSD is, like, something that causes severe behavioral changes, and so we're interested in it as a problem that hopefully we can fix by whatever means. We want to understand kind of it from all dimensions. We want to understand... Like, even if it turned out the treatment was just social and you somehow didn't need the neuroscience knowledge to come up with the treatment, maybe there could have been a better treatment with the neuroscience. Like, a kind of comprehensive like you... approach to understanding it would be to do both the neuroscience and the social science and kind of put them together for whatever the best result is. Because there could be future situations where you have someone who has bipolar disorder and then PTSD, and, like, knowing the neuroscience is actually how you can understand how they interact or something sure, like or something. that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you just, like, there's So many things you can't, yeah. Yeah. Good. It, it just seems clearly, like, more knowledge is better, and, you know, there's some sense by which the more you can get to, um, like, the root causes or like the root mechanisms it might be easier to control but then it, yeah i mean that's that doesn't it, that hasn't played out because it does seem like it's easier to control things through uh non neuroscience methods yeah in some ways the complex, behavior yeah. is like lower dimensional than the brain is and so it's easier to study it and control it sure. in, in yeah. certain situations no, that's very reasonable yeah and so, like, so that's definitely one of the things that they kind of, one of the main thrusts of this, which is easy to agree with, which is that there is, there can be a tendency, because it's, I don't know, marketable or something, not clear exactly where it comes from, to kind of want to be able to say something like, oh yeah, this and this problem is this brain problem. So they have this section on, you know, mental disorders as brain diseases, hmm. which I think, yeah, I mean, that is kind of... I think to neuroscientists, though, that always seems ridiculous when people start talking about some complex mental disorder as just, I mean, un unless it's like in a really specific case where we really know a lot about the neurology of it, to say like whatever disorder is. I mean, I think it's it feels wrong just because we know how complex the brain is. And so anything you're going to say about it is going to be, you know, woefully lacking in yeah. most dimensions. But it's not philosophically. Yeah, philosophically it is a brain disease. It is, and you could kind of. someday explain it, you know, At like really capture a lot of it. Yeah. It, it could be. But, yeah. but then that gets back to the, the question of... The practical consideration the, of... Yeah. Well, you, but, but kind of the mean, deep practical consideration, right? Not the current one. Like I don't know the, if I understand this then. What is... The, there's like just some... But like if you could record all of the neurons from someone's brain as they go about their but behavior... The point, yeah, the question is, could you ever? Yeah. Oh, okay. And sure. it's more than could you ever. It's like, maybe it's so hard. Just like you in a room, you would never measure all of the particles. It like in, wouldn't it, be worth it. No, but, like, no, but even in like a mathematical way. Yeah, yeah. Like it might be kind of like... All given the energy this, in the universe yeah, like, is required. Give, yeah, like you know? really, like given like given the physics of the world, it might literally be impossible to do certain kinds of measurements. Mm -hmm. You know, like but, if it turned out you needed to know the location of all the dopamine, you know, molecules in the brain to, to know fully something. understand. Yeah, the then just, you're not going to do that. Well, I mean, that but it seems, seems unlikely. Yeah, yeah, it seems very clear that they're going to be middle level descriptions yeah, that, already, that will be very informative. We've right? already, like, at least I have already, you know, put forth, oh, if you could record all the neurons, and that's just assuming that you don't need to know what's happening inside the neurons, like on molecular levels. And so, I think there are levels that we think are implicitly where the answers going to be. So, I, I, let me. I want to sidestep some of the issues we're talking about and, and get to another problem that's related to these, which is. So, okay, so there's social solutions, social scientific kinds of solutions for certain things, like maybe, you know, certain ways of treating PTSD might be social, like through counseling or something like this, or marital counseling or depression. Maybe these things merit counseling. Maybe they merit sort of biological solutions. What I would say from a scientific standpoint, uh, so these people argue, like, we shouldn't let psychological science atrophy as we focus on the kind of new and exciting neuroscience. As a sort of counterpoint to that, one thing that I, I it kind of strikes me as I read this is, 
psychology has been studied for a long time. Many problems that are well studied in psychology have not yet been at all studied yeah. by a, from a neuroscience perspective. It seems to me that the right thing to do to sort of study things like all of the things equally, certainly in ways kind of commensurate with the amount of complexity we expect them to have, is to actually spend a lot of time, and I think this is kind of what society has decided to do, or at least the people who are involved in science have decided to do, is like until neuroscience kind of catches up at least much of the way to where psychology is, we're going to spend a bunch of our resources on neuroscience. Not because psychology isn't interesting, but because there's at least a hope that neuroscience can partly catch up to where psychology yeah, is already Yeah, and kind at. of the, the reverse of that or something related to that is that neuroscience has been making a lot of advances and moving very quickly in recent years. And so I think that's where the pressure comes to include neuroscience in the funding. It's like, oh, like leaps and bounds are you know happening over here so we should get in on that and and see where it takes us whereas psychology is you know it's chugging away but it's not it's nothing it's not a special time for psychology right now yeah i think uh, so in the end then actually i think that this appeal that they make to um kind of people from both domains to try to make bridges across levels or something like this you know like, I largely agree with that, right? Because it's definitely the case that in neuroscience now, maybe especially in the kind of neuroscience we do, kind of like systems computational neuroscience, there are a lot of people who kind of, you feel that they have the urge, in a way, to explain in a basic neuroscientific way, like interesting behavioral phenomena. Because in neuroscience, there's a lot of history of kind of careful study of very, very basic or simple, thing. extremely Sim- simple, simplified. Like per- perception, the, the basic kind of but neural mechanism. Perception, Sorry, like perception, perception is wrong. Like or, sensory, like transductions, even like, yeah. like, how, or, like, like how a neuron responds to a raw, simple sensory stimulus. Yeah, for example, um, and there is more and more. I feel right. This kind of like will, you know, like I think of um, Misha Tsodix's thing. He's a theoretician, and he has this, you know, recent stuff about memory, and it's really like a very low-level neural model, and he's kind of trying to explain fairly high-level phenomenology of how m- the memory actually works in, like, humans. So you're saying there's this, like, yearning for yeah. people who are doing really basic neuroscience, like thinking about n- individual neurons, for them to be able to explain get to large-scale the, things. Yeah, yeah, to get to the kind of psychological level. Yeah, and... But, but, but like, I don't know. I don't, is I think fair? Can we? I don't know. So I'm not sure. Like, well, I, so, I really appreciate the yearning, but I feel like very few people have been successful, and I'm not sure if that's because... I mean, I think it's just hard, but then it's also kind of... I think as we try to do that, it's definitely going to be a good idea to not be blind and ignore psychology. Yeah, well, psychology so, collected a lot of data right. about behavior that yes. we need to And so to that's be why I cited Misha because he, but Misha knows that stuff well, in, his, in his case, right? So it's an example where he knows the psychology. Different world. kinds of psychology. Sure. There are the kinds of psychology that neuroscientists use, which are usually extremely well controlled, simplified behavioral experiments, often that capture the phenomenology of behavior in some descriptive way yeah. with like quantitative rigor. Yeah, and, then there's like and then there's the kind of psychology that I think these people are actually change. more arguing in favor of, which is like, again, things like how do married couples fight there's also, or how think, do uh, yeah. social groups, you know. Yeah. And in enough, that, yeah. like, so I, uh, some of those things didn't seem as popular today, but there is a brand of psychology that I think they would lump in that I think people might be more familiar with, which is like, the stuff about uh, biases or happiness or these, yeah. like, things where they sh- they claim that, like, Where's oh, that if uh, I let you eat only, like, dark-colored M&Ms, then you report more negative emotions or some ridiculous stuff like that. I'm, I, I think there can be interesting problems here, but actually, based on what people choose to study or at least what the media reports about mm-hmm, this yeah, brand of psychology, I, I'm not as interested. It's like, okay, kind of, so what? Like, you can... There are literally infinitely many things that you could characterize about humans yeah like what and they're trying trying to get them all (laughs) well it's like the effect of eating certain colors of m&ms you could imagine doing that kind of thing for like but like so so you're kind of implicitly arguing for thinking about psychology as at least philosophically psychological phenomena as being mediated by a brain just thinking explicitly about that can help you to be more Constrained, coherent, and kind of constrained. And what well, psychology so, worthwhile? And trying to that. like yeah. they have so some it's not the brain, but some. It, I mean, there's lots okay, of people yeah, in sure, this sure. field. But right? okay, we're looking but, this up that like in neuroscience, there's 
many tens of thousands of people who identify as neuroscientists and go to neuroscience meetings. There are potentially many hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who identify in some... At least have uh, bachelor's degrees in psychology. In psychology, yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, but yeah, so there's people in neuroscience or in psychology who I think think about brain mechanisms when they're coming up with what they want to test behaviorally. And then there's people who think about psychology mechanisms. There's a whole history of like yeah. mm-hmm. words that they come up with and thinking about how they interact, like your self-esteem module interacting with your whatever and like those kinds of models and those inform the experiments that they make. And I don't know how valuable those experiments would end up being for neuroscience. I mean, maybe they happen to still capture interesting behavior that neuroscientists would want to... Sure, um, but I mean, if some of them... If you happened to have one that was accurate, I really am ignorant when it comes to like that kind of psychology literature. I mean, I know a bit about psychophysics, but not that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's right. It's obviously the case that if you had one that was useful, it might be very helpful for for certain kinds of neurosystems, you neuroscientists, sure, to, yeah. to be like, oh, let's find the neural substrate of the whatever the hell unit... But yeah. I think the people who are doing stuff like the M&M colors or whatever, I think that group of literature is contributing a lot to uh, the inferiority complex that psychologists feel. And that to the extent that neuroscientists do kind of think psychology is a little hacky, it's coming from those kinds of people, the ones that are having like not reproducible studies. That are they the people who get grants? Do they get grants? I, I, I don't know. know. I don't yeah. know. And, but, it, but it's not just not reproducible. It's stuff that, even if it's mildly interesting... So, I mean, again, there's a sense in which all of psychology is the measurement of behavior, the accurate and precise measurement of behavior. I don't know if they would say that the, that's yeah. what but I'm not just, some psychologists... included in that behavior, I'm going to assert, is the self-reporting of your attitudes and preferences. Yeah, no, I agree that that is behavior, but I feel like that's not... Yeah, the... so that on top of that, there are people who want to speak in terms of theoretical models of the mind of the mind but that are not really quantitative often no. again like things kind of more in the heritage at least of psychoanalysis yeah but uh, so much of neuroscience not quantitative either i agree yeah, yeah. no i'm not i'm not yeah just wanted to say that like i think as a neuroscientist certainly as a computational person right a, 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 i think this might Maybe more, Maybe more about like computation and quantitative yeah, yeah. approaches first than like neuroscience for psychology. Yeah. So uh, to me, at least, the, the kind of psychology that I'm sympathetic with and I find plausibly useful is kind of quantitative, rigorous characterization of behaviors. Sure. And also, I think it's interesting to have quantitative and rigorous characterization of preferences or attitudes or you know people's self-reported feelings on things. I think that's kind of as useful though not as directly linkable to neuroscience. Yeah, and probably more variable over cultures and time. And time and stuff. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's interesting. Like, I kind of want to know what other people think about something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is why we like hearing survey data, even, even if it's just like, what do most neuroscientists think about such and such? Like, that would be interesting for me to know just as a neuroscientist curious about other neuroscientists. Yeah. So there's kind of almost, it's not quite voyeurism, but almost kind of like a desire to be like a like up to date on what other people just because they're people think about certain yeah things. i think every day something comes into your head and you think or you make statements um based on assumptions oh like well everyone would want to do this so like uh you know it's a good incentive or something like that but you don't really know what everyone wants to do so it's just worth mm-hmm. knowing what other people want and, yeah. and feel yeah it's interesting that we've managed to not talk about fmri that much yeah. because this is a weird so uh, my, like, if I don't think about it too hard, I think about people who do fMRI studies as being psychologists. I feel like they're usually in psychology departments, and they're not people that I interact with that much. But then obviously, they're measuring brain activity, and so they should fall more on the side of a neuroscientist because they're trying to use mechanisms based on actual data from the brain to understand things. Um, and in this paper, it seems like they're really just are mostly focusing on people who do fMRI as being part of this horde of neuroscience methods that are being pushed into psychology. Yeah, so which is why I think is related to what I was saying, right? About it, it's just about like for me, it's kind of like who are the reasonable people? And I think there are reasonable people scattered all over. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And it might be, yeah, like I, you know. Like, there are good ways to do fMRI. There are good ways to do pure neurobiology. There are good ways to do 
kind of pure psychology that you don't think is tied to neuroscience. And there are good ways to attempt to link these things, right? There are bad ways to attempt to link them. There's good motivations and bad motivations for trying to make links, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there are also people who, like, you know, and and maybe, maybe, maybe many more people who are trying sincerely and just are failing at this. I mean, that's like hmm. science is, most scientists aren't able, I mean, not necessarily for lack of trying, uh, to, 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 to make some awesome finding because it's difficult and takes a lot of work and is hard. And or, I mean, that, that's just the way science goes. I think then there are a small number of people who seem surprisingly successful, who almost maliciously seem to be like, or you, you encounter people who are extremely successful, who seem like to not have very lucid grasps on some of the deep problems with the methods they're using or something like this. Yeah, there can be funny... Well, it's dangerous for us to talk about this because, like, we're not successful. So it always sounds kind of <laughs> sad when people have really not many credentials. I mean, even, even that's how this but, that's how this paper is, is phrasing it. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. There are people all over the place who kind of look and, and, and feel like that person's overstating what they did. That, that feels yeah, like definitely. a very common and there are, there's science. Yeah, it's actually a funny general thing about science. This kind of weird dissociation between success and clout and kind of any really agreed upon notion of how good the person is. You know, there's always like, there are people who are, you know, even like amongst really top scientists, there are always people who will, like one top scientist will say that another top scientist is like really bad. Like terrible. Like terrible. Like really like. Like should just kind of can totally confuse as to how they ever became who they are. Like, you know, like that happens all the time. So it's kind of, oh, yeah. it's a funny thing. Yeah, because, well, I mean, I think it points to, one, that science is hard. and so People don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, both of those top scientists could be wrong. Or right. they could both be right somehow. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, probably right. in a way. Yeah. yeah. And then it also points to the fact that you can kind of decide to put your effort into doing a lot of hard science or put your effort into selling the science that you've done. And there's always a trade-off. I mean, yeah. any anytime you're successful, for example, in science... It's not just because you had the best ideas. It's because then you told a lot of people about yeah, you did them a in bunch a really of things nice way. Properly, and you including cleanly doing presented science. your work, but sometimes over-cleanly presented your work. Yeah. I mean, this is just... Often over-cleanly, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this paper is touching on that kind of like saying that people who do fMRI, fMRI are overstating what they find when they can show that a brain area is active during certain so tests. This, this kind of gets into their ideas of neuroseduction and neuroredundancy, but it's not clear that it's a problem just as they, like, they're almost reifying this, this thing as a n- thing that neuroscientists do that other people don't do. Like, all scientists, regardless of field, yeah, exactly. spend effort overselling what they're doing. It really yeah. felt to me like a lot of this was just about, it turns out, that for a certain set of psychologists, the version of this salesmanship thing that they encounter most often is kind of neuroy, yeah, and that's why they're annoyed yeah. with neuroscience. And but it's neuroy it's more general because than that. neuroscience is popular now because it's been doing well yeah. in other domains. Sure. I think, and like you know, yeah, for us it's like in neuroscience, there's, we have a version of this too, and like within every sub, I mean, within systems computational neuroscience, there's a version of this that we've talked about, right? You have to present nowadays, you don't have to, but you are encouraged to in some abstract way, to present studies that are a mixture of new data and theory about that new data. And also, for some reason, you have to use a lot of different methods when you collect data. Use a lot like of different you have methods. To use electrodes yeah, and nature paper needs to have like, all the methods, like you know, <laughs> all the imaging and the image. Yeah, yeah. you like twelve different ways you check to make yeah. sure that one sentence you want to say is true. Yeah, but so like that's the thing that we could complain about, which would be similar. It's like oh, all the neuroscience is being taken over by people who do. You know, flashy a mixed new methods, flashy new <laughs> methods, and a mixture of data and theory in one paper. But why can't I just do this good electrophysiology paper that gets a lot of good results? Or why can't I do this pure theory paper that elucidates something? I mean, so it's always the case when yeah, you have limited resources. Is fatty, it's really fatty, and so. But again, really, I, uh, then this also comes to limited resources, limited prestige, extraordinary levels of competition. I think, almost to some extent, to me what a complaint about psychology feeling like neuroscience is flashier is saying is just right now there's a fad in favor of neuroscience. Society buys into it for some good reasons and for some bad reasons. And like for a period of time, psychology is not going to be as well-funded as neuroscience because people don't care about it as much. And ultimately it goes in part back to taxpayer dollars. Yeah. So like if, if lay people, but if you really bad reasons are partly 
kind of more interested in neuroscience. Maybe it's because journalists are. I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, because yeah. in so this paper talks about you know hiring practices and they look at the wording used when they're like putting out a call for professors to apply to colleges and saying you know there's this uh, trend of there being more things related to neuroscience being requested for psychology professors and you can argue like oh well the people who are doing the hiring like why are they buying into the neuro buzz and that sort of thing but if it is the case that they want people who can get grants then yeah. it's whatever the grant people say they want and if the grant people are saying they want neuro stuff either because, because the congress is saying yeah because yeah. congress isn't you know excited about it or again because there are some advances i mean it's hard to know who where the fault lies with you know why psychology is becoming more neurosciencey and then, again, not to excuse this, but of course, individual people will often oversell what they've done, in large part because they're subject to personal pressure. Like, if they want to keep doing science at all, they have to sell their work, which is, you know, yeah. part of the contemporary uh, competitive landscape. Well, do we have any other thoughts? I have this, uh, so I happened to stumble upon a Quora question, the, the question and answer website. And someone asked, like, when does psychology become neuroscience or when does neuroscience become psychology? So it was a, a timely question to see. And there was one answer that I thought was kind of interesting but might not – I don't know how psychology people would feel about it. And so it's from Paul King, who is a neuroscientist. And he says, the simple answer is narrative. Neuroscience is the study of biochemical mechanisms of the brain. These mechanisms are understood to be organized in layers of abstraction physically, from molecules to synapses, neuron circuits, brain regions, and ultimately the whole brain itself. Used as systems, these same layers still exist but are seen in terms of sending signals around and processing information. Whether viewed structurally or systematically, the focus is on mechanism. Psychology focuses more on narrative. Why do we do what we do and feel the way we feel? What is our story to ourselves? Where does meaning come from? What insights will allow us to change? Um, and so, and then they, he says that as psychology seeks answers to these questions, it bumps into the mechanisms and then bump, you know stumbles into neuroscience and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a very abstract. I, I mean, I, I like that response. Yeah, but it's abstract in the sense that it doesn't get at yeah any of. The, I think it's hard though to know. I mean, this kind of gets at it, which is like psychology. I mean. Sometimes I feel like this is true of neuroscience. There are so many different perspectives within neuroscience, yeah. right? There are people who focus on translational neuroscience where their goal is really to do experiments that just kind of check if a treatment might work for a certain disease, and it's not really like basic science at all. And there are, you know, many different perspectives. People focus on many different topics. In psychology, people also focus on many different topics. People focus on things that are kind of useful for economists, things that are useful for marketing, things that are potentially useful for, for medicine. There, there are kind of so many different perspectives some of its neuroscience some of its not fields especially big successful fields like psychology has been in the 20th century uh have you know there's sometimes trouble defining them in clear ways and they get so big and diffuse in many respects that you know like some of these things like marital counseling these people are kind of owning that as though that's a psychological like thing to study i would almost like that could be social work very yeah, it wasn't – when they brought that up, I thought, like, psychology studies that, I guess, accounts. I mean, yeah, everything. I like, yeah. anything that's about humans and, like, the way humans feel about things. Yeah. You can argue as part of psychology, but there are other fields. So, like, in all of these cases – What does a psychology look like in a totally different society, for example, right? I mean, it could be sure. a completely different uh, – Yeah, so, I mean, some of this has to do with, like, we live in a capitalist society, so there are certain things that we're interested in. And, like, I, I think a lot of what psychology ends up being used for – stuff that I'm not very interested in, you know, have to do with, like, how to sell people things or how to assess people's attitudes to see what you could sell them or things like this, sure. um, aside from the sort of medical prospects. So, like, if psychology in contemporary America is largely used for things related to, you know, selling people things, assessing people's preferences, attitudes you know, largely for the purpose of, you know, productizing something, uh, you know, it's not clear to me that we need more, you know, psychology that's on things that people don't think are useful or could be sold to them as a product. Like even marital counseling, you know, why is marital counseling something that's worth studying? Well, because people want it. That's, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not being staunchly capitalistic, but right. I mean, people <laughs> want marital counseling and it's a product that you can sell to people as a therapist. So, like, a psychology department, if it can 
get people to pay for their education as therapists and then sell people marital counseling, right? That's why doing the marital counseling research was kind of useful in the first place from like a strictly capitalist standpoint. Yeah, I mean, you can make that argument about uh, technically about like any kind of science in some way. Uh, well, you, you, you can't make that argument about the kinds of sciences that aren't immediately tethered to any kind of profit motive. Yeah. Nowadays, almost all, it seems like almost all science, at least in a sort of superficial way, has to claim to be, not profit, you know. But tied to Treating disease is how we consider If you want money from people, like, on some level, the the money has to be earned through, I I don't mean people making personal promises, but promise. There has to be some prospect that something interesting will be gleaned from it. And for most people who provide money to people, certainly lots of money, kind of intellectual insight is not going to be a sufficient value. So, like, you know, you you have to say, like, there's potentially a health benefit to this. There's potentially a kind of market benefit to this. Yeah. Uh, these things, I think, come up. And I think psychology actually, from, from those standpoints, gets a lot of funding. I mean, it's, it's kind of my impression, just not all in academic psychology. You know, some of it's like, you know, there's lots of consulting places and think tanks that put a lot of money into like what would by some definition be considered psychology yeah and by just like pharmaceutical companies put something in money into what would some by some definition be kind of a neuroscience yeah, yeah and given that psychology is focusing more on the levels of the mind and behavior it seems obvious that they could more easily be directly applicable or be directly applicable faster than neuroscience I think what would actually be an interesting kind of question is, is there a subspace of psychological questions that have no real profitability, but are still interesting to us as human beings? And I think if that's true, then it would be nice if those things were funded. I think it, I think psychology is that people love talking about people and how they function, like laymen all the time, you know, it's like people on the street are constantly talking about other people and asking, oh, well, why did he do that? And that kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, but, so. but I'm asking kind of more specifically, are there, are there like... I don't just mean, like, folk inference, like, by a specific person about another specific person. I mean, like, are there topics, whole domains of psychology that are not immediately profitable? So, like, I would consider marital counseling something that is at least closely enough tied to something profitable that it, it doesn't necessarily need kind of abstract well, no, okay, funding. Okay, but that's, that's the thing, though. Them. If there's something that people are interested in, it's going to be profitable because people will buy a book on it or something. You can't tell me, like, oh... Everyone wants to know about this, but you can't make any money off of it. Well, but I mean, there's a difference between who makes the money. Like a journalist makes the money. But a school a school uh-huh. actually makes money selling master's degrees to people who will then be marriage counselors. I think an interesting aside, though, is the extent to which there are domains of psychology that are not immediately profitable that we still think should be funded. So, for example, much of neuroscience only is funded as a sort of pure research through grants provided by the government. And that neuroscience research doesn't have any sort of clear tie to profitability. Like if, if you think I'm going to study something that in 10 years, if it's successful, might lead to a treatment for some disease, the government might say that's a potentially worthwhile investment. But like you can't have a school that can afford to pay for those kind of researchers to be in-house because there's no close tie to money for that research agenda. In psychology, I think that there are many kinds of things that are already almost useful enough for the money to come without government funding. So, for example, in the case of marriage counseling, right, a school can actually make a lot of money on certain master's programs. A university can offer a master's degree in marriage counseling or something like this and pull in huge amounts of money with, like, you know, it charges a heavy tuition. There's many people per year. They can make a lot of money. They can easily pay for it if they want and chose to spend the money that way. They could pay for a few faculty to be even funded doing research based on the master's, based on teaching in a master's program. Mm-hmm. And so good marriage counseling research can be done in a way that's funded through master's programs, which, like, as my, my understanding is, like, statistics programs, for example, are funded similarly because there's enough people who want to pay for a statistics master's degree. Yeah. But so, like, neuroscience can't be funded that way. There isn't, like, a a big demand, at least today, for for a neuroscience master's person. A but person with just a master's in neuroscience isn't like a, a hot commodity on the job market, as I understand it. This is, this is a separate point to the points that they're raising in this particular paper, right? 
suppose we're at the point where we're hiring three marriage counsellors and we have our marriage ca- marriage counselling researchers and we have our funding coming from somewhere who do we give the job to the guy who says he's going to do some wishy-washy fMRI thing or the like serious pure psychology guy right you can just pose the question at that point you can pose that question at that point yeah Is because that not- in this uh, framework you could apply the neuroscience to any topic I guess applying a nice the, layer of neuroscience onto whatever psychology topic pull the neuroseduction card yeah even marriage counseling post the existence of whatever funding there is so you're saying the breaks down because the grant thing is is gone now because they don't have to get grants and it's not sexy anymore so yeah, i mean i think so that the, in this case the university would have to view it as sexy you you're always speaking to some market if you want to get money from them yeah okay are we saying anything else I think this is it. Delightful.